It's time to get away in a new Hyundai vehicle during the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event at Woodhouse Hyundai. The Hyundai lineup of sedans and SUVs has the capability you need and technology and features you want, like the all-new 2023 Hyundai Palisade and Hyundai Tucson. This holiday season, get into a vehicle that will give you confidence with Hyundai Owner Assurance, America's best 10-year, 100,000-mile warranty. Visit us online at WoodhouseHyundaiOfOmaha.com. He looks at us and he goes, what kind of weapons you got? We're like, we got AT4s, a 50 cal. He goes, you got a tripod for that 50 cal? No, but we got a 60 and we got a tripod for that. And you know, M16s and stuff like that, grenades and claymores. He's like, well, he goes, I want you to get that 60. I want you to get it up on the roof, put a guy up there with him. I want you, you got 10 minutes to get on the radio, call back to your rear and tell them you're done. You're not talking to them for the rest of the night because we've been DF'd and we're gonna get overrun tonight. I hope you're enjoying the Sean Ryan Show. Let me take a minute to tell you about Vigilance Elite Patreon. Our patron community receives exclusive behind the scenes content from the Sean Ryan Show as well as an extensive library of Vigilance Elite videos not seen anywhere else. I also engage in live video chat with Tier 3 members once a month where we discuss a variety of topics. Vigilance Elite Patreon is what makes The Sean Ryan Show possible. Thank you for listening, thank you for your support, and head over to patreon.com vigilanceelite and get your subscription today. Only soldiers can talk of war and the adrenaline and the fear and what it's like to know that the enemy is all around you and maybe coming at you. In a moment, some Marines are going to tell us about that. Serving as scouts, they got caught up in the battle for the Saudi Arabian town of Kafji. Nobody expected that Kafji to happen. Nobody. The battle for Kafji was won partly because of what two small U.S. reconnaissance teams did. They were in Kafji as spotters to report on enemy troop movements and to call in air and artillery strikes, but they became trapped behind enemy lines for two days. Whole time it was going up. You know, first time, this is my first time ever going to count guys. Being 21, uh, yeah, I was scared. Well, what's the contingency if we get overrun? He's like, well, and he had a star cluster. He goes, I'm gonna take this star cluster, I'm gonna walk up in that yard and I'm gonna pop it up and everything around here is gonna light up like the 4th of July. So there's six of you guys and a small SF team in this city and that's it. Before dawn Friday, scattered bands of Iraqi snipers still roamed the town. They were all that was left of a force of at least one battalion that had attacked Kafji. The Saudis claim the Iraqis lost hundreds of dead and wounded, while Allied forces supposedly took only four dead and eight wounded. All kinds of stuff going through your mind, you know. Remember you got a mission, complete mission. That's do your job, basically.
Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to SRS. As always, I wanna kick things off and say thank you to all the patrons who've given us a tremendous amount of support. Those of you who have been here since the beginning have noticed the production value just continues to get better every episode. I also wanna talk about our new YouTube channel, Sean Ryan Clips. Sometimes these episodes are long and they can be kinda of hard to digest in one sitting. So what we've done is we've broken up all the previous episodes and we're releasing them on the YouTube channel, Sean Ryan Clips. So go check that out. And lastly, if you can't support us on Patreon, we would love to get a review from you on iTunes. Click the link below. Please leave us a review on iTunes. All we want is just one word. If that's all you have time for, that's perfect. Thank you. Let's get on with the show. And now for our next guest, 014. He was a reconnaissance Marine, a Green Beret, and a CIA contractor. He also served in Desert Storm, which was a war in the Middle East over 30 years ago. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome my very good friend, Mr. Alan Cooper. Coop. What's up? Welcome to the, uh, the show. Thank you. You're the only one that's been up here before we actually interview you. Yeah. The only one. Am I? What's it, yeah, what's it feel like sitting in that chair now that we're not running around? It's a hot seat, man. I'm itching, nervous. I get nervous every time too. But uh, yeah, you know, you built that bar over there, that nice uh, live edge, the tabletop, which I turned into a photo. Which is nice, I like that. Yeah. I would've went that route too myself. You would have? Yeah. Nice. I didn't care for them legs, but I do like it hanging on a wall. And you did the V. You pretty much built half yeah. the damn studio up here. Oh, it looks like you beat up the V a little bit, but you know. I, well, I, I broke it, but I glued it back together <laughs> when I was putting it up. You have told me I would have made you a new one. Well, we'll talk about that Okay, yeah. offline. But uh, I got you a little present. So, go ahead. It's in the box over there. Present? Yeah. Yeah. Almost everybody gets a present. I didn't get the last couple guys a present because the Just subject matter of, was so all serious. All kinds of goodies. But... Oh, look at that, man. Desert Storm. Yeah. Well, I'm, you are the only person I know that <laughs> served in Desert really? Storm. Yeah. Is that a fact? Yeah. I got some gummy bears. I do like your gummy bears. More gummy bears. Wow, man. What do we got here? Yeah, you know what that is. Oh, yeah, I know what that is. It's just a couple of fat pills. Oh, yeah. Oh, my goodness, dude. Wow. Yeah. This is my favorite. And he knows it. This is my kryptonite. What is that? That's a peanut butter bucket. (laughs) That's a peanut butter bucket. (laughs) Yeah, you know, there's nothing. Usually, they got like articles or podcasts or YouTube videos or news or something to research the guests. So there's nothing to research on you. So I had to uh, get in touch with Lori, your wife. Yeah, my wife. And she, uh, she told you my kryptonite. Huh? She did. She did. Where'd you get these? I think I found them at an antique store. 
<laughs> I used to be addicted to antiquing and then I wound up with a house full of shit. No. I've actually got stacks of these, dude. Really? My dad collected them while I was in the So are do you are you in one of those? I don't believe you don't so. have a trading card. No, I don't. You didn't make the cut. No, didn't make the cut this well, time. Well, that's too bad. Oh well, you probably should have. <laughs> that's great, man. Appreciate it. Thanks. Yeah, yeah. But man, um, I've been trying to get you up here for I don't know how long, and you kept putting it off and putting it off, and you live like ten miles down the road. Well, so let's just go ahead and address the elephant in the room. The elephant in the room. The mm -hmm. reason why I was putting it off is. As you can see, I'm missing my front tooth. <laughs> you got it back and then you... Yeah, I did. I got, I've had two failed implants in that tooth. I've been dealing with this tooth for 42 years. I got it knocked out in a fight with a, one of the neighbor kids back in the 70s when I was nine. I think I was nine. He knocked it out with an axe. With, with a little some hatchet. serious shit going yeah. on. Well, we played, we played rough back then. Apparently. Back. Was no, you know, <laughs> he's going for the jugular, <laughs> huh? Hell yeah. So, yeah, I've been dealing with it. And uh, just, what, two months, three months ago, it failed again. So I had to get it taken out. And now I got to get a whole bridge, which means I got to shave all them teeth down like a hockey player and stick it up in there. Nice. So we didn't want to wait for any longer. So we decided to do it without the tooth. Yeah, we said the hell with it. Yeah, we'll just uh, address it. the the elephant in the room. Heck with it. It was like pulling teeth trying to get you in. Yeah, you know? literally. <laughs> <laughs> literally, yeah. But uh, now I kind of want to just talk about, you know, like I said, I don't know anybody or know of anybody that was in Desert Storm. And uh, I think I was eight years old. That kicked off in, what, 90? Yeah. And uh, yeah, so I was eight years old when that kicked off. I remember buying all those damn trading cards really? and yeah, oh. yeah, those are like first grade, I think. But um, so I want to talk a lot about that. I know, you know, you had a major part in that war and uh, and uh, got some decorations from it. And you're also one of the only people I know, maybe the only one that was a, you know, Marine, reconnaissance Marine. Uh, special operations. Then at some point you moved over to Green Beret, uh, Army Green Beret, yeah. another uh, uh, branch of special operations. And then we wound up meeting at uh, CIA contracting. Yep. Yep. So, uh, and um, yeah, so you got three pretty badass titles, CIA, Green Beret, Marine Recon. Right. Am, am I missing anything here? Or? Nope, that's pretty much it. That's, do, you, do you can, that's it? You're not an overachiever or anything, are you? No. <laughs> no. Uh, nope, just was blessed. <clears throat> Fell in place for me. You know, and another reason I wanted to get you on is because most of the people that come on the show, as you know, they have something that they're trying to promote, whether it's a nonprofit or they have uh, they just want to get their story out. But like I said, it, you know, no pun intended. It was like pulling teeth trying to get you in here. Mm. And uh, and I want to say that I I can't speak for the entire community, obviously, but I think that you are a good representation of the majority 
of the special operations community. You don't like talking about what you did. You don't like letting people know what you did. You don't like talking about transition and all the challenges that you faced. And, um, and uh, as, if, as I can imagine, you're extremely uncomfortable in that chair right now. Oh yeah, my heart's going like this. <laughs> you're absolutely correct on all that. We don't like talking about it. Yeah. You just it's not doesn't feel normal to talk about it. Especially, you know, if me and you were sitting here one on one, nobody else was in a room, yeah, we could sit there and rap all day, but I know it's going out on the waves, you know, the airwaves, so Yeah. Yeah, it's unusual. It'll be good though, you know. Your yeah. kids will hear it. Yeah. Your family will hear it, your wife, yeah. your parents, siblings, and uh, you know, we're documenting history here, so it's pretty cool. In the history books. Yeah. Hopefully but, they don't rewrite it. <clears throat> but you grew up in New York. Yeah, I grew up in a town up in upstate New York called Ilian, New York. Um, if you own a Remington shotgun or rifle, look at the barrel and it'll have Ilian, New York stamped to it. My dad worked at Remington Arms for 38 years, so... That's what I've been raised around guns my entire life. Small town, it was a village, actually called a village when I lived there because it was so small, but it's since grown up a little bit and now it's called a, uh, a town. Um, I went to the school, uh, the town next door, which was called Mohawk Ilian. But yeah, that's where I grew. That's in central New York. What made you want to join the Marine Corps? I knew I was going to join the military when I was eight. As soon as I figured out what the military was, I would actually, when I was a kid, I would get out. You used to be able to get a magazine. There'd be a rec recruitment ad in the magazines. And I would pull them out and fill them all out and send them in. <clears throat> and it was, you know, an invitation for a recruiter to give you a call. But I was looking for the free headbands and the free wristbands and the signs and stuff like that. And they were calling me up when I was like 10 years old, going, hey, we're going to talk to Ellen Cooper. <laughs> My mother would answer the phone and she'd go, eh, you're going to have to wait for about another 10 years before he's old enough to go. He's only 10. You know? so, but I was looking to get the, the free stuff. But I knew I was going in the military at a young age. It was absolutely no question. Was what just, was it? What inspired you? Was it family you know, history? Or? No, it wasn't family history. I was actually, for my immediate family, I was the first one that ever went in. My dad worked in a factory his whole life, you know. But, uh, you know, I was, I come from a, I don't want to say poor, but we were a low, medium class family. We, uh, you know, my mom used to shop for my clothes at the Goodwill and stuff like that. I mean, we were by rich and by no means. I can remember my dad telling me, yeah, we used to go down there and buy a, a French fries at McDonald's for 10 cents, you know, every Thursday. It was French fry night and still today, I still eat McDonald's French fries. But there were 10 cents back then and my dad's like, well, I made $2.10 an hour back then too, you know, so they were Damn. kind of pricey. But, uh, the thing that made me want to come in, I think, was just I liked that 
war type thing, you know. War, no. they depict, you know, this was when Vietnam War was going on. It was uh, G.I. Joe at that time, you know, we are all G.I. Joes running around and it just, the country, you, you couldn't turn the TV on without seeing a Marine Corps, you know, commercial and stuff like that, or the Army. Um, and it was just very appealing to me, very appealing. So how, uh, how young were you when you joined? I actually joined the delayed entry program, which was, uh, well, I wanted to join when I was 18 or 17. But my mother wouldn't sign the paperwork for me to go in because I was underage. So I actually had to wait until I was 18 before I could sign. Her philosophy behind that was I'm not going to sign you into something and then have you hate, hate it and then come back and blame me for it. So, <laughs> but I actually, my last year, my senior year in high school, I was actually enlisted, ready to go. What year was that? That would have been 87 because in 88 I left. 88, you yeah. left. 1988, August of 88. I actually left two days before my 19th birthday. Damn. Paris Island. What uh, was your job description? In the Marine Corps? Yeah. Well, I started out, I started out as a tow gunner. And the funny thing is, is the way I got there was the Marine Corps had started a new program called MCT, Marine Combat Training. And I was one of the first dudes to go through this entire program. And it was basically set up for to teach every Marine, regardless of whatever MOS you were, to be, to be a rifleman or no combat operation type stuff. And uh, I went through that and it seemed like it was like months, but I'm sure it was only like 30 days or something like that. But there was a road march on that thing. And I got the biggest freaking blisters on my, my heels. I'm talking, they were deep. And when it came to picking out MOSs, they go, what MOS do you want? I go, I want whatever MOS where I drive in that Humvee and I don't have to walk. <laughs> and it was a tow gunner. <clears throat> so it was actually a tow gunner when I enlisted in the Marine Corps. Okay. And that's kind of part of the infantry. Yeah. Infantry's broke up into uh, machine gunner, mortarman, basic infantrymen, and then a tow gunner. So I chose a tow gunner because I didn't want to walk no more. I was tired of it. Right on. How long were you doing that before? I was learned? a tow gunner for approximately, I think about eight months. I That's got stationed it? in Hawaii. Oh, okay. So I went through tow gunner training, right? And then I got stationed over into Hawaii. I was in Hawaii in a tow, gun, tow gunner platoon for, I mean, like three, three, four months maybe. And they came in and they said, we need you guys to take a swimming test. So they threw us all in a pool, gave us this extensive swim test, and only eight of us came up out of the water, basically passed. And they said, out of you eight right here are no longer in tow, gun tow gunners or go tow platoon you're now in the special training section and that's how my career started progressing it was pretty cool just I didn't right know. off the bat you didn't even they didn't even give you a choice it was no you're going into special operations no you're, you're going your special training section what it was was it was uh there was only eight of us and then one dude was in charge of it and uh they took us and they sent us to coronado 
In Coronado, they taught us over horizon navigation. You ever hear the, there was a course out there called Coxon course. Mm -hmm. So I went through that Coxon course. It was five weeks long in Coronado. Well, real quick, just for the audience, because they don't know what that is. Over the horizon is those little Zodiac, those yep. rubber boats. And basically what you're doing is you're navigating right. that little boat in the middle of the ocean over the horizon, meaning yep. past where the eye can see. Yep. It was the uh, the F-470 Zodiac and the Boston Whaler, which had uh, twin twin 70s on it. It was a small craft. Um, but yeah, you're exactly right. We did it over the horizon navigation. We did uh, well deck launches out of a ship and uh, some scout swimming type stuff like that. But the main thing was uh, over the horizon to do amphibious landings. So they sent us there and we did that. And then they made us all rappel masters. Then we, they made us all high speed cast and recovery masters. And I don't know if they even do that anymore. Do they do that anymore? Uh, they did it, but it was more out of tradition when yeah. I did that. They weren't, it was kind of, I don't want to say worthless training, but it, it was, is. You know, we're never going to do I it. I thought it was worthless back then. I'm like, why don't you just stop the damn boat, let them, <laughs> let yeah. them get in, you know? But basically, for those of you that don't know, it's you took an F-470 Zodiac or a rubber, rubber craft and you mounted it onto a, a larger craft a larger boat and then you would have swimmers out the whole concept behind it was is you were basically too far out or you're too too close to shoreline for a ship to get in to pick you up so you had your scout swimmers that did the mission came out went out swam out to a, a depth which this boat could pick you up and they would hold a lasso out basically and flip you up into the back of the boat and then go out to the ship. So you learn that and then we did spy rigging they made us all spy masters. So once everybody was qualified in all this, these uh, disciplines, we went ahead and started training the line units on amphibious landings, scout swimming techniques and stuff like that. Did you, did you know that this was special operations when you were doing it? No, we didn't look at it like that. You got to remember back in 19, this would have been what, 1990, 1989, the Marine Corps had no special operations. Mm -hmm. They didn't recognize anything as being special operations. They didn't even consider uh, reconnaissance, force recon or battalion recon as being special ops. It was just the Marine Corps, period. Okay. So, you know, you got your little designations and other branches where in the Marine Corps, you're just a Marine, period. You know, it's like, hey, he's SF or he's a combat controller in the Air Force or this or that, Navy SEAL. In the Marine Corps, you're just a Marine. Back then, I don't know what it's like now. That's probably for the better. Yeah, it was, you know. So we did that and then uh, we basically taught amphibious landings and did a lot of operations with, uh, we trained a lot of Brits on it too hmm. and Malaysians. I remember doing some Malaysians. We did a lot of Malaysians cross-type training. With Can you folks. give a brief description on what a scout swimmer is? Scout swimmer is uh, basically an individual who launches either from a small boat. 
So what the, what we used to do is, and this is a one of the pictures I showed you there. It's uh, with the subs. Back in the '90s, early '90s, they were determining on whether or not to get rid of this different class of submarine. They felt that the use for it was no longer. At least this was my understanding. So they used the Marine Corps, they used recon to go ahead and show that there is still a application for the sub, we could still use it. So what we would do is we would get on the sub and we would do dry deck and wet deck launches off the sub. We would take the little zodes, that 470, within um, 500, about 500 meters from the coastline and then deploy scout swimmers. So as a scout swimmer, what you would do is deploy, you get in the water with your fins on, all your gear, your weapon, and you would fin all the way into, into a certain uh, distance from the coast, from the actual hinterland, you know, the, the coastline. And you would do a series of uh, uh, events. You know, you would also recon the coast, go up and down the coast prescribed distance like we're gonna go a thousand or not a thousand a hundred uh hundred yards this way then we're gonna go a hundred yards this way recounting the coast seeing if there's anywhere anybody on the coast itself and then we would come in a little bit further a little bit further come up on the coast sneaky you know sneaky sons of bitches <laughs> and get up on the up on the land and then do a series of zigzags looking for a suitable place to hide a boat. Once a suitable place to hide the boat was found, we would go ahead and signal the boat, radio or whatever type of light we had, bring the boats in, the F-470s, the Zodiacs, bring them up in, take the motors off, and we would silently take them all up into the hinterland, the hinterland being where uh, the vegetation starts on a beach, hide it, go off, do your mission, once your mission was complete, come back, recover the boats, and then launch back out. We would take the zodes out to a certain distance or a location where the sub was loitering. The sub would come in, periscope would go up, and we would stretch a line between our, our zodes. The periscope would grab us and then pull us out to a suitable distance where it would then surface, and then we would get back down in the sub. Just for the that's a lot. Yeah, just for the audience, when you hear you know, special operations, first ones in, you know, that's basically that's one of the ways what they're what they're saying is a beach insertion like that, hydro reconnaissance. Sometimes you're calling in, you're looking for a place where more forces can get in. Right. Or you're just gonna do an operation, yeah. Get in real quick, do your thing, right, and get right back out. But this this is one of the ways how Right. We as special operators get in uh, to a target before right. anybody else, before conventional forces. Yeah. So and that, yeah, you're right. That's one run raising. Another reason we did it was to do hydra hydrographic surveys, and uh, we actually did a few hydrographic surveys for LCACs to come in. Oh, really? Yeah. Yep. All interesting. Very interesting. Fun. Good yeah, time. we had a good time. I had a good time in the Corps. You like that? I loved it. Man, I was not a fan of hydro recon. <laughs> I loved it, dude. But um, 
When did you move into, so when did you, was there a graduation? For? From training? When you got your, did you get the designation? For STS, there was nothing. This was just something they stood up and that was it, man. So the, you're like the very first, very first Force Recon Marine. Yep. I even had a, I had a, uh, a Boston Whaler, one of the uh, Boston Whalers with my name on it. <laughs> we all had our names on it. It was cool. No shit. So we you were, were like plank the first owner for dude. Force Reconnaissance. No, this was for STS. Okay. Special training section. How I got the recon was through these guys. Okay. So what happened was the Gulf War kicked off. Well, it started in, I want to say August of 90. Yeah. Sometime like that around there. And uh, the eight of us STS guys were, uh, what they had done is because nobody wanted us anymore as far as paperwork goes, they didn't want to take care of us paper-wise. So they kind of just folded us into recon, said, you guys aren't recon, but paper-wise you fall into recon because nobody else wants you. We're like the bastard children, right? So we're sitting in the chow hall, all eight of us sitting there eating, and we're like, the war just kicked off. And we're like, the hell are they gonna use us for? I mean, there's no boats in the desert. You gotta remember, we were only, we were 19 years old, 20 year old dudes, man. We didn't know nothing. Yeah. <laughs> we're sitting there eating, and it was funny because the minute we got done eating and we walked over, they the recon guy, the uh, I believe he's the first sergeant, came up to us and said, go get your shit together, get your shit packed. You're now recon. We're going to war. <laughs> we were like, you got to be kidding me. Were you excited? Was I excited? Um, Tell you the truth, I don't remember whether I was excited or not. I was more like flabbergasted as to what the hell am I going to do? Because recon, you know, there's a lot of training involved in becoming a reconnaissance. We they they didn't even make us do the damn uh, indoctrination. Wow. They were like, based off of what you guys do and you've been doing it, you're basically doing a lot of the Marine Corps or recon mission now, so you're just recon now. Damn. I yeah. would think you would be excited. I mean, eight years old, you're mailing in oh, yeah. snippets to the recruiters and having axe well, fights with your buddies. You got to remember, I'm 52 <laughs> years old. I can't remember everything. But yeah, we were all uh, we were all like in awe, basically. Wow, we're gonna we're going to combat. We're going to a war zone, you know. And uh, the Gulf War was the first substantial, you know, war since Vietnam. I mean, you had a little conflicts like down in Grenada and Panama and stuff like that, but nothing at this level. And, and we had enough time to sit there because we didn't deploy until September to hear all the news and the horror stories. I don't know if you guys have ever heard them, but they were predicting there was going to be like 10,000 U.S. soldiers killed in the first freaking hour, the oh, wave. Wow because Saddam Hussein had enough time to build up a first defensive belt, which was minefields, and we can talk about that, but minefields all throughout the entire border of Saudi Arabia and uh, Iraq. 
Well, before we get into that, let's take a quick break. And okay. then I uh, just want to give a quick history lesson to the audience because that was so long ago. Okay. All right. Operation Desert Storm, or the Gulf War, happened over 30 years ago. So let's do a quick recap on what happened. On August 2nd, 1990, Saddam Hussein, the Prime Minister of Iraq, sent his army into Kuwait to basically take it over. Now, Kuwait was a major oil supplier to the United States. The eight years prior to this, Iraq was at war with Iran, and the U.S. actually backed Iraq. We actually turned them in to the fourth largest military in the world at that time. Now we have to back Kuwait because they posed a great threat to Saudi Arabia, also another major oil producer. So if they would have taken Kuwait, if Iraq would have taken Kuwait, then Iraq would have turned itself into the fifth largest oil producing country in the world. So we had to step in. Now let's just go over a couple of key facts with the war. Now George Bush sent over 500,000 US troops to Operation Desert Shield. On January 17, 1991, Operation Desert Shield became Operation Desert Storm after all diplomacy that we tried to do failed. Desert Storm became the largest air campaign at the time since the war in Southeast Asia, Vietnam, the U.S. and 40 allied nations flew 18,000 combat missions over 116,000 air sortie missions and dropped 88,500 tons of ordnance in that war. The air attacks during this war lasted for a total of six weeks, while the ground war actually only lasted for 100 hours. Iraq tried to split up the U.S. coalition by launching Scud missiles at Israel. However, Israel did not respond thanks to its allied partnership with the United States. Desert Storm was the first time that we saw the MIM-104 Charlie missile system used in combat, which is basically a missile system used to intercept the Scud missiles that were launched from Iraq. It is also the first war where the U.S. Air Force utilized space technology and stealth technology in the war. In total, about 697,000 U.S. troops took part in that war, with 299 losing their lives. Let's get back to the show. Now, the rest of the story. So, yeah, so, <laughs> you're now recon and you're packing your shit you're going to war i'm now recon they said you're going to kuwait or we're going to saudi arabia because kuwait was overtaken by iraq we we're like where's kuwait i didn't know where kuwait was like like them guys in vietnam where's vietnam right so where's kuwait so we looked up we found out where kuwait was so we actually got our gear ready. They started giving us classes on how to do call for fire and stuff like that. Um, it wasn't really much time to do patrolling type stuff. And, and you know, first of all, there wasn't even a, a second or a third platoon. There was only two platoons in recon at the time. And when they integrated us in there, they stood up a third platoon 
and split us up with a bunch of new guys that were coming in. So we called us ourselves third herd as, you know, whenever you're third platoon, you're third herd. So we got in there, we set up, we got ready. We started uh, packing, checking gear, repacking. I mean, you know the loadout, it's just horrendous. Inspection, inspect this and whatnot. Uh, I mean, the rules, and you had the rules, you can take any porn with you, you can take any booze with you or any personal firearms. Cause we went all, we all went out and actually bought our own pistols. Oh really? Yeah, we all went out and bought our own pistols, thinking we're gonna take <laughs> take our own pistols over there, and they're like, "No, you're not." <laughs> so they squashed that. But good thing though, because I bought a Taurus, and the damn thing broke like the first freaking time I used it. But <laughs> that's what you went and bought a Taurus. Yeah, that's all I could afford. I was a E3 man. <laughs> so uh, yeah, we got it all ready to go. Everything was ready to go. I think we left in September, some, somewhere around September, from what I remember. Uh, we flew there. Uh, I believe it was a, they don't have them anymore. It was a C-141. I believe we flew over there on a C-141 and landed somewhere in uh, Saudi Arabia. Well, how long, when they told you, pack your shit, you're going to war, did they give you a time estimate of how long it was going to be before you were actually They did, but the it kept ground? getting kicked back, kept getting kicked back. We were actually on lockdown. We couldn't go anywhere. And uh, uh, we had to stay in the barracks and whatnot, but it was like, okay, we're going. And then we went. How, how long was it? Uh, from the time we got the word until the time we left, about three weeks. That's it? Yeah. So you did call for fire classes. Yeah. And, and, and whatever other classes they want. You gotta remember, we didn't have all the technology. We got, I had a Prick 77, dude. Yeah, that's, and a 104. that's true. And a Prick 77 ain't hard to use. I mean, you're just cracking, you're on, you're, you know, you're live. Um, and nowadays, that's like a... We had no GPSs, we had a compass. We got a GPS in the, when we got over there though. It was an, actually a GPS out of a helicopter. And there was only one dude that knew how to use it. <laughs> it was a team Damn. leader. Nobody else knew how to use it. He didn't use it, you know. Uh, night vision goggles were uh, crappy at best, but uh, no body armor. All we had was a flak jacket and a we call it LBE at the time, canteens and a butt pack. Real low key, low, no tech. So there wasn't much to call for fire, man. Yeah. And as a reconnaissance element, you're not involved in, you know, direct action and stuff like that. So room clearing, you know, basic room clearing was all we needed to know. And I think that was just more or less common sense. It wasn't an official class or anything like that. We were very, in comparison to what I've done into in SF and in the agency, this was like grade school, like elementary school level type training. Really? Really, yeah. It was just gut, man. Gut, let's go, let's do it, we're Marines. Was it, was it, were you going to an urban environment or? We didn't know what environment we were going in. You didn't know it was just gonna be desert, nothing. urban, nothing? Nothing, we didn't know anything about it. We weren't told anything about it. We were just, knew we were going. Improvise, overcome, adapt. That's the whole Marine Corps motto, you know, and 
we lived our lives like that. We didn't care. It was like, let's go. So you got there. So we got there and it was hot as shit in September. <laughs> you know, we got in there, the Gulf, within the Gulf. And I remember they put us in these big warehouses on cots and it was just blistering hot, man. No AC, no nothing. We sat there on cots for a good, probably two weeks, drinking warm Coke. I remember we were, they go, hey, you want some Coke? Yeah, sure. We put it, open it up and it turned into foam as soon as it hit your mouth. It was just all warm shit, you know? But they had, like I said, they brought in them global pre-positioning ships. I had all the equipment on it and they started offloading that and we started getting getting that equipment. You know, as a, as a Lance Corporal or even a Sergeant in the Marine Corps, we were all sitting around and it was basically the higher ups were doing all the logistics stuff and then bringing that logistics to us. And only a few people were involved in that, and that wasn't team guys, so to speak, you know. So we just sat around until they figured out where we were going. Initially, they took us to a, like a military compound. I couldn't even remember where it was. It was actually rooms with AC, stuck us in there. We stayed there for a little bit <clears throat> just to acclimatize and adapt to the uh, area. We continued to go over training you know, like uh, the 50 cal. Now we had 50 cal, so we did the timing on the headspace and timing for the 50 cals and stuff like that. We we went to a few ranges, I believe. Um, one thing they had, and this will play later on, is they had AT4s, but they only had the nine millimeter practice stuff. Oh. We never shot an AT4 before. All we shot was in practice nine millimeters little tracer around yeah but anyway we did a little training on that we got vehicles at this time no up armor nothing just soft skin no doors on half of them uh humvees or uh humvees that were somehow they got painted desert some of them did anyway yeah. desert colors you know we stayed there for a while and uh we did a lot of card playing <laughs> poker and uh, then we got the word we were going to a place called Manifa Bay, which is on the eastern side of Saudi Arabia in the Gulf area right up through there, I believe, yeah. And then uh, we went to Manifa Bay and that's when we sat down and we started digging holes. They said we were protecting the border and stuff like that, but uh, we're just loitering there basically. Is that, that's what these <clears throat> pictures are? Yeah, they're, they're kind of in the same area, living in, uh, living in holes for the most part. Then they set up a tent city, and we went to a tent city and hung out there. I can remember getting hit by uh, multiple rocket launchers. It was funny, because you can see them on the, on the horizon. They look like Roman candles. Just and that was the first time we got hit. Rockets went up over us. And they ended up hitting a guard shack for MP shack. But they had played that chemical weapon warfare stuff so high, so much that everybody was extremely paranoid over that. And we all had gas masks and mop level, you know, mop level suits on us. And I swear the first time that thing went off, I had dawned and cleared that entire mop suit in about 30 seconds. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
it was like, because they had different alarms and the mop level alarm went off and we we're like, holy shit, man. Putting that thing on down and cleared and then you just sit there and then you start hyperventilating. Did I, do I got any gas? <laughs> Did I get gassed? What's happening? And then they give the all clear and it's like, wow, man. And that's, you know, that's, that's got an effect on you as a kid, you know? Yeah. 20 years, 21. A lot of guys that have gone in during, say, if you went into Afghanistan, joined the military in like 2014, you've already heard about combat for the last, what, 14 yeah. years. Here we didn't hear nothing about it, you know? It was, the mindset wasn't there at all. It was, you know, yeah. it is what it is. But uh, yeah, the first time we got hit was like, then after that, they kept heading us and hitting us, and pretty soon it's like, okay, the alarm went off, and you're sitting there, and you're right going, yeah, all right, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> whatever. Did they ever wind up using chemical no, weapons? No, they didn't. Well, they claim they did after the fact, and they trying to roll it into the, the Gulf War syndrome stuff. But if I don't think officially they've ever said that they did use chemical war. I mean, I'm sure the government would never lie to us. Mm-mm. Right? Hell no, man. Yeah. I think the big scare was with, that we had our, uh, our uh, artillery unit actually had tactical nukes. And if they used any of that, they were going to nuke them a little bit. Oh. Just, you know, a little bit. Nice. <laughs> but it never came down. Just a little bit, huh? Yeah. Just a little nuke. Just a little nuke. Nuclear war, yeah. nuclear chemical. But, but yeah, that was that was that. This was pretty much like what I refer as to the admin phase. Just us trying to get used to what the surroundings and whatnot, and people trying to figure out the higher ups trying to figure out how this is all going to unfold. And we just did a lot of standing around, sitting around. Um, and like I told people, I said, combat isn't always boom, 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 boom. You're not always going. There's a lot of downtime. We did have a lot of downtime. <clears throat> then we started moving up a little bit more north towards Kafji, towards the border, uh, Kuwait and Saudi Arabia. And then we started doing more legit type stuff. Mm -hmm. you know, like, okay, now we're getting up here. We got a purpose and we're here now to... Uh, Re do reconnaissance. How many of you guys were there? We had, on my particular team, we had six. Six? How many six of you guys were moving towards Kafji? Just six? Yeah. Oh, shit. So we operated were... just in a six-man element. So you it. were conducting reconnaissance and surveillance for, oh, yeah. we for were definitely conventional doing, units? We were doing the reconnaissance mission. For the whole front? For... The 600,000 deployed. It Well, no, because it was all spread out along Iraq all through there. Just for our corridor, <coughs> which was mainly Marine Corps. Third uh, Marines, I believe, or 1st Marine Division. And uh, just our little slice of the AO. Shit. Nobody expected that Kafji to happen. Nobody. They didn't think they would. I don't believe they. anybody thought that Saddam would have the nuts that come down through there <clears throat> into another country, Saudi Arabia. So, 
So we started getting missions to go up into Kofji and recon that area. And uh, actually, they had hit an oil platform up there, or a oil facility, you know, refined gas refinery. <clears throat> so that place was smoking, and we went up there and investigated that and kind of went through the city. The whole city was abandoned. And the day it abandoned was the day they started the air campaign. Why was it abandoned? Did the, the, the population just evacuate? The or? population just deed him out. They all got out of there. And it was, it was quite the sight because as soon as that uh, air campaign started, there was nothing but taillights going south, getting out of there. Damn. <clears throat> I mean, they said they dropped, what, 88,500 tons of ordnance yeah, out of the sky. Yeah, they pumped living daylights out of them. They were nuts. They pounded the, the, the will to fight out of them people. Because none of them really wanted to fight. I got pictures of POWs. We had so many POWs coming south, we, we couldn't take them all. They were just like, hey, keep going, keep walking. Damn. I want to take a minute to tell you about Vigilance Elite Patreon. Patron support is what makes this show possible and gives me the ability to bring these one-of-a-kind stories to the public. Go to patreon.com slash vigilance elite and support the Sean Ryan show today. So we got up in the cafeteria and we started, uh, you know, finding locations to set up all our, uh, our uh, equipment. You remember back then we had the 104 and we had to set up an actual antenna full wave dive pole or V, different types of antennas to set, tuck back to the rear. So we had to have enough space in order to do this. So <clears throat> we find suitable locations to go ahead and do this, usually on rooftops and stuff like that. Um, we had been operating up there in Kofji for a couple weeks before the actual event happened. So what were you looking for? Were you just were you just reporting any activity that was happening? Just any activity looking? that was going on. Okay. There was some stuff going on there that we weren't aware of. There was a a joint, I believe it was a joint operation element that was just right on the border, just north of where we were operating on Kopchi. <clears throat> and what it was was it was a combination of there was a few seals up there. Army Special Forces, a lot of radio battalion type guys, you know, nerds on radios. And uh, they're all sitting up there in a little, up in this little house up there. <clears throat> and we came in, we found an SF team in Kafji, just rolled up on them. Didn't, nobody talked to nobody. We didn't know who the heck anybody was or if there was even anybody up there. We had talked to them. And it was funny, I remember, we had been eating MREs for like a month. And they had like these big pans of nice lasagna and all kinds of stuff, man. We're like, what the, <laughs> the freak, man? We're over here eating shit and we're <laughs> eating good. We ain't take a bath in like a month, man. And they were all cleanly bathed. So we were like, where are you coming from? And they're like, we got a safe house just north of here that we're operating on. So we thought, you know, it was... There was absolutely no guidance. You can do go and do whatever the heck you wanted to, you know? Yeah. So we actually went up to that safe house. And it was like, there was a commander sitting in there, right? 
he's sitting on a couch and I remember typical Haji house, you know, it was just concrete with some rugs and stuff on the ground. And uh, he's sitting in this couch and the TV's playing. And the movie that was playing was Tom Cruise and Cocktails and Dreams. And he's sitting there and he looks at us and he goes, what kind of weapons you got? We're like, we got AT4s, a 50 cal. He goes, you got a tripod for that 50 cal? No, but we got a 60 and we got a tripod for that. And you know, M16s and stuff like that, grenades and claymores. He's like, well, he goes, I want you to get that 60. I want you to get it up on the roof, put a guy up there with him. I want you, you got 10 minutes to get on the radio, call back to your rear and tell him you're done. You're not talking to him for the rest of the night because we've been DF'd and we're going to get overrun tonight. And we're like, I was like, <laughs> I was like, what? So, and it was funny because he was sitting there like chilled out watching Cocktails and Dreams. Yeah. And my team leader, who was, uh, he was a corporal, E4. But the thing is, is he was a 35-year-old E4. <laughs> oh, and and uh, Lentz was his name, but Lentz is like, all right. So he told the radio guy to go out there and get contact with these back to the rear and tell them we were going to be off the line for a while. And uh, we got the 60 up on top, and Lentz, Lentz was like, well, what's the contingency if we get overrun? He's like, well, and he had a star cluster. He goes, I'm going to take this star cluster, I'm going to walk up in that yard, and I'm going to pop it up, and everything around here is going to light up like the 4th of July. It's like, this crap's you can't make this crap up. <laughs> I guess he had air support. Yeah. And it was all stacked up, ready at his bidding. Of course, we didn't know any of that, you know. So that was the longest freaking night in my life. And we sat there, and we got one round that came in, and hit like in the front yard. And as soon as the sun came up, Lynch is like, get your stuff together, we're out of here. And we got it the heck out of there. And we went back down to the city. So that night we positioned ourselves in the city. And I remember we got in one place. Were you still with the SF team? Nope, we left. You we left separated them? ourselves from them. Okay. Because we thought that, you know, they're gonna bring the heat. <laughs> we yeah. don't want to be we don't want to be we only got six dudes remember yeah we don't need no too much heat so we went down to do our job again re-established comms with the rear and set up in this other place another house and i remember sitting there it was at at night and i was sitting up there and you know we pull shifts over watching the city and whatnot and that was my shift and i looked over and we had a call sign if we ever saw uh, multiple rocket launchers going off. And you know what they are. They're the ones with the big box on the back of the truck. Yeah. They just... And uh, we had a call sign, or a code word, mail call, meaning this thing's coming down south and it's going to hit you. And I'm sitting up on the roof, you know, thinking, doing whatever. And I looked off in the horizon, I can see that thing just going... You can't hear it, but it's like... And, and I was looking at them and they were coming up and they were coming right at us. <laughs> I was like, you gotta be kidding me. So I'm, you know, I watched the first like three of them hit 
the biggest freaking fireballs I've ever seen in my life. And they were kind of walking in to where we were. And I ran downstairs yelling, you know, mail call, mail call, we got incoming. So we all bunkered down and everything. And uh, that was it. About three or four rockets hit like right there in front of us. The building we were in coming down the, what the, we call the main MSR. The main, there was two MSRs that came down out of Kuwait and they split. One came down on the east side of the city and one on the towards or the west side or the east side by the, the ocean. And then one came a little bit more inland on the, on the uh, east western side of the city. And I was like, wow. But anyway, that happened that night. So we called up and told them, you know, this is what happened, we reported all that. And then we just moved location. Because we didn't know if there was an FO in the city or whatnot, people watching us. Yeah. So we just moved the new location, we sat up, and that night- <clears throat> Is this still the abandoned city? Yep. So what's it like watching an, I mean, was there, nobody was there? Nobody was there. You just watching nothing all We're going night. in and out of people's houses. Damn, dude. We had nothing to do. That's eerie. No really, no rule other than to go up and recon and walk around and survey this city. Yeah. We were up there, we went into the bank. They had cleaned the bank out. We were well, did they raid it or, did, I mean, were they? No, I think the people took it. Yeah. The people took it that left. Um, you could find, we found a little bit of cash laying around, a little bit of this or that, but pretty much they took everything out of their houses and packed it up on their car and left. Damn. Anything of value. What's the population of the city? I mean, uh... Oh, I have no idea, but it was, I was looking at it on uh, Google Maps and uh, it's a pretty good sized city. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty good size. And uh, there was nobody there. Damn, that's eerie. All there was there was cats, cats and dogs. Yep. Wow. Yep, and we had full rain. We had a we had a pair of uh, bolt cutters that we referred to as the keys of the city. So <laughs> nice. if we wanted to get anywhere that was bolt, we just so there's six of you guys and a small SF team in the city, and that's it. Pretty much, the SF team was kind of up out of the city. Okay. And I can show you that on the map. We had another recon team in there, but they were kind of separated from us. And this is when it started. So, so another had, six people, so there's 12. Had, How many know, SF guys were there? They were totally out of the picture. So there's 12 people in this entire damn city. Yep. 12 Americans. Well, what happened was, is we had small arms fire that night. A lot of illumination going up. Boom, 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 boom. Everything was lit up. And this was just north of the city. And we were like, the team leader, our CO in the back could hear it. I mean, they were that close where they could kind of hear this stuff going on. And uh, we were like, well, we got a lot of illumination going off. We got a lot of small arms fire going. It's... Uh, we're gonna stay and see what happens. So the team leader said, we're gonna stay. And then we watched that whole group that was just north of us, all under five tons, and they all evacuated. They actually got in a little bit of a firefight with them and then evacuated and left. Totally out of the city, went all the way down north. Lynch said, we're staying. <laughs> so we stayed. The night went through the whole night, a little bit of small arms fire. 
And I don't know what they were doing up there. You know how Arabs like to shoot up in the air when they win something or, yeah. you know, whatever. They could have very well been doing that. They get excited. Yeah. You know, and a couple clips or a couple mags. But anyway, so the next morning, once again, I'm on, I'm on watch again. It's 06 in the morning. And I hear this noise grinding. I'm like, what the heck? I'm like, what the heck? So I got the binos up and I'm watching. And I started seeing people walking down the MSR, the main MSR that came down in front of us or right to the side of us. And they had uh, RPG packs on. And then I looked over and I heard more grinding. I looked over to the the east and I started seeing them M111s, I believe they are, armor personnel carriers. Oh, shit. And I was like, dude, they're all packed down here like, gypsies and uh i ran down i let let you know team leader know and they started getting on the radio and started reporting and doing all these reports so how it worked was is lentz the team leader and the rto would stay down at the bottom we would observe and then give them the reports and they were just all reports going out how many people we had t-55s come down there that's an old tank from, you know, 55, 1955. T-55s come down. I, I think I counted like six of them. Then uh, we had uh, the T-72s come down, and then more and more people came down. So after it was all said and done, there was like, they, they said there was around 750 to 1,000 Iraqis in the city, overtook the city. And we were in the middle of it. How many? About a thousand, seven hundred fifty. They think they were the. Uh, and there's six of you. Well, at this six point. of us plus six of us, so about twelve of us total. <clears throat> and there was a. Uh, uh, they believe it was the uh, Iraqi Repu Republican Guard that was coming down through there to the fight. These guys didn't care about nothing, man. They were pretty cool, chilled. You know, they were just walking down there. Of course, you know. They've been in combat, too. They just got done with fighting Iran. Yeah. You know, so kind of emboldens you a little bit. Yeah. So they overtook the city, and we're sitting in that building just reporting. And uh, once we reported back that the city was overtaken, that's when they started ramping up the coalition force to come retake it. They weren't going to let any Marines come in there. They tried to portray it as a rescue mission for us, but it's not a rescue mission if you choose to be there. We're not, we chose to stay there to report. It wasn't a rescue mission. It was, hey, let's get these guys the hell out of here. Yeah. Okay, they're not supposed to be here. So as they were working their plan up, they developed, they put this coalition uh, together. It was uh, Qataris and Saudis. Qataris were there because they had tanks and the Saudis had armor personnel carriers and stuff like that, like LABs mm -hmm. and with guns on them and everything like that. The reason the Marines weren't allowed in the city and the Marines basically set up all around the city on the outskirts of it and you know provided fire, but they weren't going to let them in because they didn't want to level the city. They let the Marines, they wanted to, they wanted to keep the collateral damage to a minimum is what they really wanted to do. 
Because if you let the Marine go in there, Marines clear buildings with grenades. Yeah. You know, and they would have leveled the whole damn, yeah. <laughs> damn building. There's not going to be any city left if you, you know, let them uh, it would have been take the gloves off. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, they, they, uh, <clears throat> they set up this coalition coalition force, and it was mainly guitars and a couple tanks. And uh, we had Cobra helicopters flying around. We had a couple of Harriers come in. I remember the Harriers came in and dropped the load. And then a Sager missile was fired at them. And as soon as that Sager missile, this is the difference. As soon as that Sager missile was fired at a Harrier, they stopped all air. No more air came in. Then it, just, then it was just Cobra sitting on the outskirts with tow missiles and hellfires, and uh, that was pretty much it for as far as support. Well, we had artillery, and uh, 12th Marines artillery was uh, supporting that whole endeavor too. Harriers never came back because they shot a Sager missile. I guess they didn't want to lose one. I don't understand that, but that's what it was told to me. <clears throat> so they got this fiasco of a coalition together. <laughs> And my buddy, who was in the rear, they actually put a team together to come up to try to get us, you know, to meet us as we were coming out. And it was funny because they get, they got in this line. It was the Qataris in the tanks, the Saudis in the uh, LAVs or the yeah LAVs, and then our guys in the Chaplain's Humvee, because that's all they could get. And they're spearheading this freaking attack up the freaking road, the MSR. Qatari tank got hit. Boom. Blew the freaking top off it. And everybody else went like this. And they were in the momentum. And my buddy was spear, spearheading the attack in the chaplain's Humvee with nothing. Oh, <laughs> and they actually got up in the city, dude, and then dismounted and started moving. Starting their fighting, fighting yeah, their way towards you? Yeah, they were moving, shooting, and communicating. And getting in the city while all the coalition force said, whoa. <laughs> and it, it was kind of comical because you hear all this over the radio. And I remember my buddy, somebody come across the radio and uh, the coalition was actually being led by an SF guy who I still remember his call sign was Coyote. And it was a, a major. An SF major was orchestrating these coalition folks to get up there and clear the city. His name was Coyote. And somebody got on the radio and said, hey, Coyote, is it okay if I throw this grenade? <laughs> <laughs> Coyote come across, the, and you hear this on the radio, and he goes, I don't give a shit what you do. Do whatever you want. <laughs> but okay it was funny because off, off in the distance, you could hear that grenade go off. And then all hell broke loose. <laughs> oh, shit. Uh, it was it was funny, and then they were like, "Hey, where the hell are you?" You can hear him moving and communicating. And they're like on the radio, and he's like, "One of the guys goes, what's your location, man? We we need to know where you are, where your location is.'" And he's he's looking around, and he's, you hear him on the radio, and you can just visualize this. And he's like, he goes, "I don't know where the hell I am, but it looks like every cat and coffee took a shit in here." <laughs> And then all hell breaks loose, you know, because somebody throws another grenade and, just, and they're just moving, 
moving towards us, but they never, they finally got stopped and they never got to us. But just the comical crap that was happening during this whole, yeah, this whole endeavor, it was funny. But so they finally got the coalition together. A uh, couple things that happened during this whole process. The other team that was more to the western side of the tent, the the city actually called an artillery strike on top of us. And if you ever heard an, an artillery round go off over your damn head, it's probably the loudest thing I've ever heard in my life. And it was time fused. So it, you know, exploded in the air and then threw fachetti rounds or whatever it was all over and, you know, just for personnel, basically. Yeah. Well, that happened that popped all the tires in our vehicles and couple holes in the gas tanks and stuff like that. So we were screwed there, kind of, sort of. And uh, we had one guy, and I don't know why he never said anything, but there was one dude that was sitting in the building next to us. And he was actually shooting at us. But he never told anybody else. It was weird. You know? What do you mean? You mean... One of your guys saw an Iraqi shooting at you? We saw him in the building next to us, and he was just like peeking, and he would shoot, and that would be it. And then a little later, he would shoot, and then he would go down. We don't come figure that one out. Well, did you you shoot him? No. We didn't, we didn't do it. We didn't respond to him because we didn't want anybody to know us. We had a BTR-50. Oh, you didn't know if he actually saw you or not. You thought he was... Well, he was shooting at us, so... Yeah. The thing, the the weird part is, is why didn't he call in reinforcements and give our position away? He never did. But we had a... And here's that AT4 comes in play. We had a a BTR-50 roll right in front of our paws, right in front of our position. And they're all sitting up out of the turrets and everything. They were close enough we could see their faces and everything. And me and my buddy were sitting up in this small little room with that AT-4 locked and cocked, safety pin out, getting ready to put this round through if they had saw us. And they drove right by, never once looked up in there. And today, I even think about it, I'm glad we didn't shoot that thing because it would have blew our freaking eardrums out of our, our heads. Because after, later in life, I've gotten a chance to shoot an AT-4. And uh, you don't want to shoot an AT-4 off with no ear and protection sitting yeah. in a little concrete room. <laughs> it would have, we would have come out of there bleeding, put yeah. it that way, you know. But uh, for some reason, this guy never shot. So as it progressed, we've been, we were in there for 40 hours, roughly, about 40 hours behind, totally surrounded by the uh, Iraqis. And... Uh, Finally, the coalition had made it a corridor in which we were able to drive out. And uh, I got pictures of that vehicle, but all our tires were blown out, no doors, all soft skin vehicles. And we drove out right around all these Iraqis and they never shot at us, never saw us. And we went right out, popped right out. And that was that. Damn. And that was there was forty hours of that shit. Forty hours. What about the other team? The other team had a little bit more closer 
call. They actually, one of the guys, Brown is his name, got hit friendly fire. <clears throat> got some shrapnel in his leg. He actually got a purple heart out of it. Um, I don't know if you knew Sterling. Sterling was over there and uh, he was the RTO. But they had people, Iraqis actually in the building, same building as they were in. And they could hear them coming up. They actually burnt all their crypto. Damn. Back then we had CAC sheets and everything crypto wise. Yeah. And uh, they burned it all, destroyed it all, and uh, they were ready to go. You know, fist of cuffs. <laughs> but they never happened. You know, yeah. this guy over here, when we when we pulled out, we shot a saw and about uh, two two or three grenades up into that building to cover our our uh, exfil there, and uh, nothing ever happened. We don't know whether he, we got he we got him or what. It just went away. Yeah. Well, I mean that happens a lot. You know, you get an engagement, you don't go. You don't go look. Don't always go back to uh, yeah. check and see how many bodies are laying there. But you know, or if any at all. It was quite the event, about forty hours worth, and uh, our contingency was if we didn't get out that night, we were going to walk out because we were relying on Saudis. You know, yeah. so we're gonna, the contingency was, hey, listen, if we don't, if they don't make a corridor for us to get out of here tonight, we're just going to go ahead and drop this stuff and uh, we're going to walk out through the wadi and uh, sneak out. Because, you know, we owned the night. We had the MVGs we had was was crap. But, yeah, it was better than what they had. They didn't yeah. have nothing, you know. Crap to compare to, you know, what we have now. But Oh, yeah. <clears throat> what was it? Was it like the two-to-ones? It was a, a box. And I think they finally gave us, we started out with the box ones with two... Two uh, uh, lenses, and then they they finally got us to one lens, but it was the first generation. Yeah. And that first generation, you couldn't see nothing, man. Hmm. There's nothing. I've never looked through them. Yeah. I don't have that wall. <laughs> but the you know we've been up there working and like i said the, the reason i got on cnn after we got back to the rear had some lunch was the weeks prior that we were up in there we actually had a wireman on our team and he wired a bunch of phones up on this abandoned city and we all made collect calls home so my mom knew i was in that city <laughs> oh shit and then the next thing she sees is the city's overrun you know, Damn. and back then it was snail mail. You had to write a letter and she might have got it in two months. Yeah. You know, so the quickest way I could get the word back that I was all right. And she was going nuts, by the way. Both I'll my bet. parents were going nuts. So you called your parents and your your radio men wired the phone so that you could make a collect call back to New yeah. York. To yeah. tell them, hey, we're in Kafji. We're in Kafji. And they flip the news on and Kafji's being overrun by yeah. the Iraqi army, which is the fourth largest army in the world at that time. <laughs> Holy shit. Yeah. So the quickest way to get the news to her that I was all right was to get on this TV guy, which happened to be CNN. Damn. And let them all know that I was still alive.
first on the battle for the Saudi border town of Kafchi. It was captured by the Iraqis on Tuesday and retaken by a combination of Arab and American units early today. Some fighting continues on the outskirts of the town, located near the Saudi Arabian border with Kuwait. We get a pool report filed today by Brad Willis. It is shortly after 8 o'clock, Friday morning, February the 1st. Although the Saudis claimed overnight that they have reclaimed the city, we are seeing a number of armored personnel carriers and Saudi tanks rolling into the city. We have heard some loud explosions and sporadic small weapons fire. Clearly, there is still some resistance, some sniper fire, and some heavy Iraqi weapons still doing battle in Kopchi. During the height of the battle, these Marines were trapped for 48 hours inside Kopchi on a reconnaissance mission. Today, they feel lucky to be alive. Tell me what it was like for you being pinned down for two days during the battle for Kopchi. Uh, pretty scary. Didn't know whether I'd make it or not. Uh, all kinds of stuff going through your mind, you know. What to do. Try to keep your head, keep a level head. You know, remember you got a mission. Complete mission. Yes. Do your job, basically. What kind of fire did you come under? A uh, heavy machine gun. A lot of tone missiles going by. Uh, that's heavy, small arm. Sniper fire. Yeah, we took a uh, sniper fire yesterday. Or not, this morning. Was there a time you thought that you were going to lose your life? Oh, yeah. Pandemonium. Damn. Well, let's take a quick break. Okay. Thank you for listening to The Sean Ryan Show. If you haven't already, please take a minute, head over to iTunes, and leave The Sean Ryan Show a review. We read every review that comes through, and we really appreciate the support. Thank you. Let's get back to the show. All right, we're back from the break. We had one more op. I call it the last op. But you, this opt helped end the war. Pretty much. I think, in my opinion, it did. Um, so there was this big stink during the entire war about these defensive belts, right? Where were they? They were minefields that were laid out. And uh, Saddam Hussein was trying to prevent anybody from rolling up in there. So what they did was is they sent up B-52s and they did arc light daisy cutters it's a big huge bomb that they roll out the back end of it and it kind of creates a creator <laughs> so to speak a lane so they wanted to know where these lanes were they didn't know exactly where they were so they sent us this was our <clears throat> pretty much i guess our last our last mission in the whole war and uh it was like a 15 click movement patrol on foot we went up on foot we carried uh, rucksacks that probably weighed about 100 pounds. Burlap, we were going to go up on the first defensive belt, recon it, find the hole that this daisy cutter made, and then go ahead and uh, mark it and then bring the troops up there so they could all go through it. Same six guys you're Same with? Same six guys. <clears throat> we got up there. There was actually two teams again, except this was another team besides the one that was in Kafti. 
So we got up there. We it was a patrol from hell, man, because I was a point man. We had them crappy nods. We had found earlier a cache of uh, toe poppers. You know, toe popper is a small mine like this. It's for, for a guy to step on and blow his foot off. Yeah. Well, they spread them things all over the place, too. So we had found a cache of that earlier, and so we were real leery about this toe popper. So as we're walking up, patrolling, I'm the point man looking for these things, plus scanning the horizon and everything. And we had to do a lot of stopping. And the reason being is they like to crush your Coke cans and then leave them out in the desert, and they're about that big. Oh, man. And they look like toe poppers. So it's like we got something up here. And this just kept on going and going. So we finally got up there just before the sun was coming up. And the whole plan was to take this burlap that we just carried for 15 plus whatever clicks to dig holes, hide sites, put the burlap over and uh, hide and just sit there and observe and recon the, the, the horizon. And once it got dark, we were going to go up there and recon for this uh, break in the defensive belt. Well, we got up there and started digging holes, and guess what? When you turn sand over that's been hot and cold, hot and cold, it starts to turn colors. So it wasn't the same damn color as when we dug it up and we would all stuck like stuck out like sore thumbs. Yeah. So we just happened to find a bomb crater, and I got a picture of that for you over there. A bomb crater, probably about 15 feet deep, dude. And we all got down in this bomb crater with our burlap over us, and we hugged the sides of this this bomb crater and just put one dude up and pink, pinked over at the top, you know, and did the uh, pulled security, I guess. <clears throat> and uh, later that night, we went out, we found the first defensive belt, we found the minefields, and we found the, the cut in the, in the belt and uh, annotated that, and everything was going pretty smooth, everything no problem. We were to the point where we were like relaxing now, so we're all in this bomb crater, sleeping, you know, <laughs> hanging out, <laughs> eating MREs or whatnot, you know, just hanging out. Well, a fast mover came in, and for some reason dropped a 500-pound bomb on us right over next to us, and the shrapnel went all along the edge of that freaking bomb crater, dude. I had it landing like right here next to my head. Yeah. And it was so wonder nobody got killed. I mean, it was like, what in the world? Well, the rear heard that and freaked out. So they freaked out. They came up. They pulled us out of there. We got back. Team showed them on the map where the cut was. They said, all right. They passed that to the rear. Everybody got in trucks and went through that, that cut in the defensive belt. Next thing we know, we were in Kuwait International. Damn. And that was it. I'd like to highlight what Coop just told us because it's a significant event and his humility didn't do this event any justice. So basically, Kuwait and Saudi Arabia, the border was one huge minefield with only a few routes in and out, which nobody knew the routes. Basically what happened is the mission that Coop was on with his unit, they found one of the only routes into Kuwait from the Saudi border, which in turn, as soon as they found that route, 
U.S. troops were able to take that route and get into Kuwait, which basically led to the end of the war. So what I'm telling you is the mission success that his unit and him found led to the end of the war. That's pretty significant. Now let's get back to the show. Yep, that was it for us. Everything, they were all pushed out. Iraq or Kuwait International was completely a ghost town. No Iraqis, no nothing, dude. Wow. It was, that was that quick. We went through the all oil fields, you know, where all the burning is. <clears throat> burning oil fields were going on. The Iraqis were actually lighting them on fire as they were retreating. And uh, we went through all that stuff. We got up to Kuwait International and it was it. Damn. We stayed there like for two days, two or three days. And uh, got on trucks and went back south and staged and got ready to leave. It went that quick. I think the reason the war went that quick is because it was well-planned and well-organized. Really, Schwarzkopf had it, had his shit together, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Uh, you can get there with all your critics and whatnot, but the damn thing was over in 100 hours. We bombed the living daylights out of them so bad that they didn't want to fight, man. The, 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 they bombed the fight out of them. They wanted to go home. They didn't want anything to do with this. And them POWs were coming down like 50, 100, 150 at, you know, little sections with their white flags. Who was considered a POW? Was that the Iraqis? Iraqi Army. They were just, I quit. They were quit. Threw their guns down, had white flags, and they were going south. There were so many of them, we couldn't even, we couldn't take any of them. We just tell them to keep walking south, man. Damn. Had no room for them. So it I was, mean, it was good. It was over. I guess it makes sense. I mean, it's, you know, they said uh, when I was researching the war, it said, uh, you know, 88,500 tons of ordnance got dropped and yeah. 18,000 air missions. We sat there in tents for like a month, I think, before we even went out. Damn. And why they, when you can hear them bomb the living daylights out of them, arc lights all over the horizon at night, all you saw was boom, 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 boom. And this went out for what, a month, maybe more? Yeah. Before we were even actually moved out to go do anything. Well, do you know what were they bombing? All their sites, their, their uh, tanks and all that. It was along the, big the border? Line. They had a big trench line up there <clears throat> on the border too, yeah. Okay. They were just hitting all their key spots and hitting their tanks. There were some tank battles up, up on the eastern side, I believe. The army was actually engaged in tanks and stuff like that. They had an entire fleet out in the ocean, out in the Gulf. And my buddy was on there. He was in the Marine Corps. He was a tow gunner. But he sat on that ship the entire time. And at the end of the war, Schwarzkopf said, I never planned on using them. They were nothing more than a diversion. <laughs> you know, how'd you like that? Sit out there forever and just be a diversion. Yeah, that would suck. I hope you're enjoying the Sean Ryan Show. Let me take a minute to tell you about Vigilance Elite Patreon. Our patron community receives exclusive behind-the-scenes content from the Sean Ryan Show, as well as an extensive library of Vigilance Elite videos not seen anywhere else. I also engage in live video chat with Tier 3 members once a month where we discuss a variety of topics. Vigilance Elite Patreon is what makes the Sean Ryan Show possible. Thank you for listening, 
thank you for your support and head over to patreon.com slash vigilance elite and get your subscription today. You came back from, from Operation Desert Storm and you left the Marine Corps. Yep, I did about three more years in the Marine Corps. I did a six total of six years in the Marine Corps. Okay. Continued on in recon. Did some great stuff, you know. I went to the island of Tonga. The country, it's actually the country of Tonga. Uh, we helped them set up their military. They used to be the Tonga National Guard, but they changed it to the Tonga Marine Corps. We helped them set up their little operation out there. Uh, I went to dive school, jump school, uh, mountain leaders course, you know, went to a bunch of schools, had a good time and whatnot. Why'd you leave? <clears throat> oh, you know, I got disgruntled. My, I think the problem, my problem for leaving out of the Marine Corps, I would have stayed in if I had left Hawaii. I did the whole five and a half years basically in Hawaii. Hmm. Yeah. I think if I left, I probably would have stayed in. But I got a little disgruntled. It happens, and I said, okay, I'm out. Yeah, I get it. I mean, um, so he left. I actually talked to your dad a little bit, did some research. He started working for Remington Arms for like six months. He couldn't handle it. He couldn't handle that <laughs> transition. He said, I got to get the hell out of here. And then you joined the Army. Did you yeah. know you wanted to be a Green Beret when you joined the Army or? Well, yep, this is the thing. When I was out of the Marine Corps about a month, I knew I made a mistake. I was like, damn it, man. You know, it, it's been in me since I was a kid. So once I got out, I was like, this is a big mistake. So I actually lived in Montana for a while because a, a, a ex-wife of mine, I lived out there with her, but anyway, Called up the Navy. I said, hey, I want to go Navy SEAL. And they said, we're not taking any prior uh, military. What year was this? That would have been 90, 94. <clears throat> they weren't taking any prior military. So I said, all right, damn it. They go, well, we can put you on a list. But I said, how long is the list going to be? They said, about two years. I said, I can't wait two years. So I called up the Air Force. I said, hey, I want to go PJ. I'm going to be a pararescue guy. They said, we're not taking any prior military at all, period. And I was like, well, I know the Army will take anybody. <laughs> now, keep in mind, I was, I'm still got the Marine mindset. Mm -hmm. And the Marine hated the Army mm -hmm. <laughs> back then. So I was like, all right, the Army will take anybody. But I had a lot of buddies that transitioned from the Marine Corps and went straight SF they had a program called the SF Baby Program. I forgot what the designation was, but they were going that route. So I said, I'll do that. And I called them up and I said, hey, I want to go join the Army. He said, come on down. Signed the paperwork. I said, I want to go SF. He said, you can't. I said, well, my buddies did. He said, well, they did away with that program. I said, okay, so what are you going to give me? They go, we're going to give you the infantry, 11 Bravo. I said, all right, what's that? Infantry, okay. Then he goes, you can choose where you want to go. You can go to Korea, Italy, or Fort Bragg, North Carolina. I said, where's SF at? They said, Fort Bragg. I said, I'm going there. I'll go there. I've never been in a line unit, dude. I heard horror stories about them. I'm like, you got to be kidding. So I was dreading this shit. 
So I got down there, they got a thing called replacement. So you go there, you get placed to what unit. And I showed up, dude, I had long hair, no uniforms, no nothing. <laughs> Guy looked at me and I gave him my folder of my stuff and he looked at it and he goes, you wanna go to LERS, which is a long range surveillance, basically recon. Because I had trained some LERS guys from Hawaii on on uh, scout swimming techniques and stuff. And I was like, you damn, yeah, I wanna go to LERS. He took me over there, introduced me to the commander. Commander goes, you want to go to ranger school? I said, nope. He looked at me, he goes, well, you ain't coming here if you don't want to go to ranger school. I said, well, I guess I'm going to ranger school. <laughs> he goes, go get a haircut and get some uniforms and, be, and report back. So that got me out of that line unit crap. So LERS, long range surveillance, <clears throat> is considered a stepping stone for SF. Okay. I had to do a couple years in regular army before they would allow me to go SF. So what better place to go to LERS? LERS worked out great. I went to Ranger School. I went to Halo School um, and some other stupid schools. And once I gave them the time back for Halo School, I said, I'm going SF. And I went to Selection in 1999. SF selection. How did SF selection compare to in the in the, in the training compared to uh, what you were doing? SF selection, believe it or not, was the hardest thing I ever did. Really? Yep. I went totally unprepared, out of shape. I said, "This is what I'm doing. This is why I came in the army." I said, "I'm going to do it," and I went and did it, and it was. And it was the old selection process. I don't know what the new one, they had a new one after I, a few years after I was in and they keep changing it up. But it was definitely an ass kicker, man. <clears throat> when they said the song, you know, 100 men will train today and only three will win the Green Beret. It's true. I watched dudes, boof, 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 <clears throat> all over the wayside. How did, it, how did it kick off? Well, the first thing, it's 21 days. The first the first few days is admin days. They give you classes and whatnot. What they're doing is, in my opinion, was they're trying to wear you out because you only got a couple hours of sleep, you know. <clears throat> Let me, uh, I just want to explain something to the audience. SF training is not 21 days. You go through selection yeah. to be picked to go to SF training. That's what's 21 days. 21 days. So it's a three week course, ass kicker course, in hopes that you get selected to then go to the next to training to become a Green Beret. Right. Okay, I just wanted to clarify that. So what they do is they give you a bunch of classes. They give you classes on land navigation. Land navigation back when I went through, I don't know if it is yet, I can't speak for the guys now, but was real heavy. <clears throat> so you gotta figure, the way they run it is, is you got a 65 pound rock sack on your back the entire time. <clears throat> That's minus water and food. You go everywhere with it. Every event is done with it, everything. And you do this land navigation course, which is called the STAR course, basic land, land nav. And I believe if you, if you added all the distance up you did, you do night and day, it's probably about 12 miles a day. And distances and you do that 
I think for like five days, five, six days, we were doing that. And then, uh, you know, they break it up with obstacle courses and other stuff like that during out the process. And then you have what you call team week, which is pretty much the last, the, during the last week. And that's basically problem solving, you working as a team. <clears throat> they do different events. Every day is a new event. And once again, you got that 65 pound rucksack on you. And you're doing like, they'll give you a Jeep with tires missing on it. And you have to move it 12 clicks. Oh shit. So they give you a Jeep with missing tires and a couple poles and some lashings. You guys figure it out and you're pretty much picking the damn thing up and walking 12 clicks with it. That's one event. Another event was like sand babies. So they had this, I believe it was like an old rifle range, but they had berms all the way down through it. So it was like this. <clears throat> and uh, you had to get so many sandbags down there. Like they had a hundred sandbags. You got to fill the sandbags, put them on your 65 pound rucksack, carrying 300 yards or 300 meters over, drop them off, come back, get more. And it's an event you gotta do. I don't know whether, I don't remember if it was timed or not. But holy cow, you wanna talk about your back doing this, dude? I wonder I can't walk. Yeah. <laughs> I got back problems, you know? So that was one event. And they had a bunch of different events, like the Sandman, they had a, a sea bag full of sand. And they gave you steel pipes that were solid, they're, they're almost solid steel pipes that were like 12 foot long that probably weighed 150 pounds within themselves. So you figure a 500 pound sea bag with all these, there was like four and plus you got your 65 pound rucksack. You got it sitting on the back and you're walking 12 clicks with this thing. You got that and pails of pain, pails of pain. They give you pails with holes in them. They got two versions of it. One's with sand, one's with water. We got the joy of having one with water. <laughs> so, you know, pails with holes in them don't hold water for long. Yeah. So you have to carry this, <clears throat> fill these pails up at the bottom of this hill with strength in the stream, and then walk up this freaking, you know, 75 yard straight up freaking hill, and then dump them in this bucket. And you got to fill this freaking 50 gallon <sighs> drum up with holes and you got to do it all fast. The thing, I remember that, that sucked for me bad because I don't have a little big gate, long gate. And they put the, they grabbed the tallest dude. He was like six something and put him up front and you got to stay with him. And he's, they could tell him to set the pace. And they're up there whispering in his ear the whole time going, you better, you better go faster. We're going to drop you if you don't start moving out. And he's moving out. Now, a smart individual would say, I'm going as fast as I can. And that buddy fuck up <laughs> behind him, but this dude didn't, dude. Oh, about, about kill me. But anyway, there was a bunch of events. And the last event of the whole process is a 26-mile road march <clears throat> for time. Of course, they don't tell you what the time is on it. You just go do it. And it's with that 65-pound rucksack. Plus, you got to put all your water and your food to last you however long it does. So I did this 26 miles. I seen, I seen dudes, dude, that with broken feet. Yeah. Trying to get, do this. All it is is a gut check. They just want to see how you're going to do, if you're going to fail, if you're going to whine or whatever. 
I think I did it in like seven hours. But this dude had broken feet. They just pulled him out. He made it because they just wanted to check. They got a little bit of compassion over there, you know, but he made it. So I finished that. It was 26 miles. Um, then they sit out there and start playing more mind games with you. And they put you in this group and they call your names off and tell you all to go over here. Everybody I call your name, you go over here and, you know, typical mind games. And then they made this crew go all the way over here so we couldn't hear them. And they're making it seem like we're the failures, but we were actually the guys that made it. So out of a, literally, I'm telling you, hundreds of dudes there, maybe 60 something made it. And uh, unbelievable, it was hard training, hard, hard gut trick gut check for me well, let's take a quick break and uh when we come back we'll talk about what you're doing when you got to your team and and uh what those asian deployments were like i want to take a minute to tell you about vigilance elite patreon patron support is what makes this show possible and gives me the ability to bring these one-of-a-kind stories to the public go to patreon.com slash Vigilance Elite, and support The Sean Ryan Show today. So we just wrapped up selection. What, after selection, you show up to your team, right? Nope. No? No. After selection, you now start your MOS training. Okay. So I was an 18 Bravo weapon sergeant. So that's, that training was a few months. Uh, let's see, started in April and ended in November. So whatever that is. Did you know what team you were going to? I knew a group I was going to go to. I knew I was going to first group. You find that out after, after you graduate. I graduated on the November 20th, 2000 is when I graduated the course, the Bravo course. After the Bravo course, you now go into a uh, language school. In language school, depending on your language, is between four and six months. My language was Indonesian. Um, so you do the four months of that. That was a four month training of everyday uh, language school. After that, you go to SEER school and <clears throat> get your ass kicked. So that was three weeks long. I believe it was three weeks. Yeah, three, two or th yeah, three weeks long. Three weeks of Sears school, which is an excellent school. It sucks all the way up, and it's not excellent until the last day. The last day is when you figure out Sears school and everything that happens, uh, how everything works. You know, I never, I never went to Sears school. No. So let's. Let's go into that real quick. So Sears School starts out with the first week is classwork on how to survive. Um, you go over uh, history on individuals like Nick Rowe. Nick Rowe was a Green Beret in Vietnam that was in uh, a POW for like five years. <clears throat> you go over his stuff. You go over different techniques of uh, how to tell a story and how to manipulate and try to get them off of what you're actually doing. So you got that for the first week. The second week is like survival stuff, like uh, how to kill a rabbit, how to skin it, uh, stuff like that. Third week, you go on a mission. 
So your mission is blah, 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 whatever. You're going to go out and do it. They break you up into like a 12-man team. You go out and do it. You end up becoming into a survival situation. So they don't feed you or nothing during this entire week. You're basically living off the land, whatever you can find. Like we found a deer head and ate it. And then we found snakes and rabbits and ate them. We robbed somebody's garden with green tomatoes and we fried them up and had fry, fried green tomatoes. <laughs> we ate those, you know. Some guys got lucky and got came across a pig farm and pulled a pig out of there and ate that. So the, like, I forget how many days was surviving off the land and then they put you on an E and E corridor. So you're E and E in now. E and E is uh, escape and evasion. Escape and evasion. So the enemy is on your ass. <clears throat> so you're going to get caught. So we got caught. They put hoods over our heads, threw us on the freaking uh, truck, took us to a compound, uh, stripped us down naked. Everything goes there. They do not give to you think, oh, they ain't going to do that shit. They're going to do it. They smacked the living day, daylights out of me. You standing there naked and they got a girl down there. They don't give two craps, man. You're sitting there with your schlong hanging out, and she's right there looking at it. You've been making fun of you. <laughs> yeah, they don't care. You think they're going to pull punches? They ain't. Racism, they don't care. They'll call you any name. If you're that, you're that. You know, and they call you that. Whatever. They just t constantly trying to manipulate you and get you all to fight amongst each other is what they're doing. They, and that's about three days. So you don't eat, you don't sleep. You're a POW in a, in a jail cell. They let you out to do yard work and chores and stuff like that. And during this whole process of why you're doing that, they'll pull individuals out and put them in a cell to interrogate. So during the interrogation, this is where you're trying to do the things that you learned in the first week, how to... You know, you deny everything. You know, you make counter accusations. You admit to nothing. You come up with a story that kind of goes along and you fight it. And they are allowed to hit you. I've never been smacked by a woman so hard in my life. About, for laughing, I smiled and she just kicked the living crap out of me. Because <laughs> uh, one of the guys was in a cell and one of the instructors. You know, they talk into like, a, hey, you, you, there, you, Mr. Green Beret, you go over there and get me captain. And we had one captain. They know who you are. And they go, he goes, I want pilot captain because there are some aviation guys in there. And uh, I went over there and I knew who the captain was. And I go, hey, he wants a captain. And they're all looking at me smiling because there was a few captains over there, but there was only one pilot. And I go, he wants a pilot. And the dude's face dropped. <laughs> and I started laughing, dude. She saw me laughing. She come the hell out of there and just smacked the living daylights out of me. Man. But anyway, they will smack the shit out of you. They will give you a black eye. And uh, it ain't no joke. So that's like three days of ass beatings. They got light cells and hard cells. And you have to pass these. A light cell is a guy going... Welcome, welcome. Sit down. Relax. Take it easy. Would you like some cookies? You ain't eating in 
you know, four or five days. Would you like some food? A lot of guys will say, I ain't eating that because they think their buddies are starving. So they're all a team. So he's going to starve. Well, they don't teach it. If they offer you food, eat it. It's better than you than it is being wasted. <clears throat> so that's a soft sell. And then the hard sell is they get you in there, they tie you up and they smack you around a little bit. They punch you in the gut a little bit and stuff like that. And they try to get you to answer the question. The hardest sell to defeat, the hardest interrogator is a soft sell guy. There was a guy in World War II, a German, I believe he was a German interrogator. He could get anything out of every, anybody and he never once hit them or mistreated them. No shit. Because once you establish rapport with that individual and you're nice, they loosen up they, and they're willing to talk. Now it may take time, but if you're continually nice to that individual, they'll tell you anything and everything you wanna know. So the soft sell is the one you wanna, and you don't learn this until after the course. So the soft sell is the hardest one. That's why you go into interrogation. I've been to an interrogation school that the cops go to, and you gotta be nice, and you gotta get all up and nice and sympathize with the individual and become part of their world, you know? And just don't worry, I understand why you murdered and raped them three women, you know? They, they, were, they were definitely in the wrong. And you just start talking to them like that, and the next thing you know, this dude's opening up to you, you know? So they teach you all this stuff. And uh, you have to pass. They're in there actually grading you. And if you don't pass, you keep going in and you keep going in. And I was a little bit thick-headed on, on the hard sell. And he goes, listen, dude. And he stopped for a minute. And he goes, listen, dude. You need to put more fake in it <laughs> or something like that. So I was like, ooh. And I started <laughs> acting like I was being beat and stuff. And they took me out. They got a pond out there. They call it the People's Pond. And he drug me out there and started dunking me under the water and this and that. And, you know, it was, and uh, we got through that. It was, but the thing is, is the school is very informative. It teaches you how to do that, to uh, avoid answering questions, how to come up. Like my, my deal was I had a Marine Corps tattoo. So I was automatically a private, a truck driver from the Marine Corps, and I knew absolutely nothing. And they bought it. And they went with it because that's the only, pretty much the only tattoos I had at the time. And they, they ran with it. And they, they actually, see, they don't know everything about you, but they do know mostly about you. And he actually thought I was in the Marine Corps at the time. And I was just there going through training and on his mind. But I was actually an SF guy with, and whatnot. Some guys break down. I've seen guys break down and they went loopy. And the guy had to pull out, stop the training, pull out his card and say, I'm Staff Sergeant so-and-so, you're in the United States Army and you're here. Do you know who I am? Oh, shit. Yeah. It'll get to some dudes. One guy gave up everything. He says, yep, he's an SF dude. He's he's an e, uh, E6. He's an 18 Bravo and he speaks this language. Needless to say, that dude didn't. Wasn't very well liked after he did that. Yeah, but even with the even when the instructors they were pissed off at him. Damn. For breaking that fast. But uh after the whole thing's done with, that's when you sit back and you look at it and you and you learn from it. And it was just phenomenal and the things you see. The unfortunate thing is 
these terrorists aren't going to give a shit. Yeah. You know, you're you're going down there with your head lopped off. Yeah. Conventional forces like the Iraq fighting Saddam Hussein, you got a chance. And we did have prisoners of war during that. If you remember Bravo 20, mm-hmm. they got out. They finally got out. They evaded. They all died of cancer, I think, from drinking some chemical water. But they all made it through there. Um, there was a female girl that became a terror or became POW that we actually think we saw them put her in an armored personnel carrier and take her north. It was the one female, if you research that, you'll see. It happened sometime during the uh, Battle of Kafchi, and we believe we did witness that, taking her up there. Um, that stuff will work. She came back, you know, you go up there. Of course, they weren't seer trained, but you have a chance of surviving when you're dealing with that type of yeah. force. These animals now and these savages, no, nah, they yeah. ain't going to care, man. So is it obsolete? Maybe, maybe not. They're looking to make an example out of us now. Oh yeah. You know, they want the press, they want they want it as graphic as possible. Yep. But But yeah, so once Sears School's over with, then you uh pop over to your group, whatever group it is you go to. And then you get assigned the team. So you went to first group. First group. And then you started deploying. Yep. You deployed primarily to Asia, Southeast Asia. Yep. My first team, I was on what was considered an ASOT team, an advanced special operation technique team. It's basically secret squirrel stuff like we did in the agency or the case officers do. Kind of sort of like that. You set up SDRs, drops, stuff like that. They teach you all that. And uh, my first trip was to Nepal. Katmandu. <laughs> And uh, we were there training uh, military decision-making process because at that time, Kathmandu or Nepal was having issues with a terrorist organization called the Maoists. The Maoists? Yep. The Maoists. And uh, this was during, after 9-11, so... Every country that had issues with somebody else labeled them as a terrorist. They got U.S. funding to fight those terrorists. And with that U.S. funding comes United States uh, Special Forces. And we go in there and we train them. So we went, my first trip was to Nepal. We went ahead and trained the Nepalese Army on military decision-making process on how to locate the Maoists and plan attacks and stuff like that. That was that was about five weeks. Every trip we did was about five weeks long. Oh no, kidding! So you would deploy for? Oh yeah, just... we were there for a month. And then you were back home. Yep. What's the deployment cycle then? It's what's that? That's different than than normal, isn't it? I mean, oh yeah. Um, in the SEAL teams, it's six months, nine months. You know, no, we did like JSETs or referred to as JSETs, Joint Operation Training uh, with Joint Countries or uh, Friendly Countries. I forget what the uh, actual acronym stands for, but basically JSETs, we went on and they were roughly between three and five weeks. Okay. And uh, you go out there, it took a signature from the... Uh, Rumsfeld was at the time when I was going. 
so the Secretary of Defense, he signs off on it, and then we punch out and do it. It's all real-world stuff. It's just not combat. Yeah. Yeah. Where, where else did you head to? So I've been there. I've been to Thailand. Thailand, we go to Thailand. We, we were doing a lot of training with the uh, FBI, DEA, Border Patrol-type people. And what we were doing <clears throat> is they had a... Uh, uh, trouble with narcotics coming across the border out of Burma. So what kind of narcotics? Uh, opium. Opium. It was opium coming up out of Burma and the Golden Triangle up there. And everybody knows that narcotics is a one of the money makers for terrorist organizations. Yeah. So we were up there, we trained them, I would train them tactics and uh, shooting skills and stuff like that and medical. They always wanted medical and tactics. Um, working, we worked a little alongside with the American DEA because the American DEA is over there also to assist them in, in trying to stop the flow of uh, narcotics coming into Thailand. Them countries over there aren't like here as far as uh, tolerance for narcotics. Malaysia and Thailand, you get caught with narcotics, you're dead. Malaysia was publicly hanging yet. No shit. Yeah. Is it still like that to this day? Probably. They don't mess around over what there. What year was that? Uh, 94. In 90, 93, 94. When I, or not, not, 2003, 2004 time frame. Wrong decade. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Somewhere around there, 2004 or 5. I've been up there 2006. Um, Thailand, I've been to Thailand probably about five times. We actually did one mission there that lasted three months. Oh, really? Yeah, and that was working with the Border Patrol cats. <clears throat> and you went to the PI too? We've been to the PI, I've been to Mindanao. Mindanao is a prominently Muslim island in the Philippines. And uh, we were working with the DEA, their equivalent DEA and FBI on, uh, once again, terrorists counter-terrorist operations because we have Philippines got J.I. coming up out of Indonesia and the MILF, which is more of a anti-government type organization, or they were. And I'm talking back then. I don't know what current events is right now on that. But at that time, that's what we were doing. We were training them to handle them. And we've had teams even go further down into the PI at Holo, which is an island even further closer the Indonesian, where they were actively, the Philippines were actually actively engaged with these terrorists. So they would fight them at night, and they had some pretty good firefights from what I heard. Um, Philippines is actually a third area of the global war on terror. So you had Iraq, Afghanistan, and a lot of people don't know that we had the Philippines. And that was, that was that's the number three. Number three. It's not as bad as Iraq and Afghanistan, but it, it is still. Matter of fact, a lot of these terrorists out of Afghanistan, they found in Thailand. Yeah. <clears throat> so we were there basically to help them. We actually had a guy killed in Mindanao. We had a, there was a small cafe outside the little base that we stayed on that a, a motorcycle, dude on a motorcycle had it packed full of explosives parked outside of that little cafe and touched it off and killed one of our guys and wounded the captain. 
Yeah. Came back. Yeah. So there was there was a little activity down there, and it's a joint joint effort down there too. The Marine Corps is down there, and the Navy is down there too. Hmm. I don't know what group SEAL group it was, but uh, yeah. yeah, they're down there too. Everybody's operating. I know the West Coast guys uh, work that area. I don't remember which team, but you know it's the West Coast. Yeah, it was over there. Although that's all changed now. Everybody, yeah. Once the war kicked off, they kind of uh, restructured everything, and yeah. uh, all the specific areas that different teams went to kind of just it all went away. Uh, right. But <clears throat> yeah, yeah. So Philippines hot. We actually have been to uh, Sri Lanka. Sri Lanka is a big island, huge island, matter of fact, right off of the coast of India. <clears throat> and their issue, they were having problems with an organization called the Tamil Tigers. The Tamil Tigers have since been demolished, killed. But we were there doing a medcap, teaching them how to keep their people uh, alive till they could get to the hospital because it was a jungle warfare. They'd have a wounded guy. They couldn't get the guy back to the hospital for like three or four days. So the whole the whole idea was for us to go there and teach them, you know, we did live tissue and stuff like that to teach them how to keep an individual alive for at least three to four days so they could get them to a hospital, get them the proper treatment. It was actually a pretty good trip. Live, have you ever done live tissue training? Yeah, several times. Yeah, it's excellent training. I think I've done like three or four times. But it's very beneficial, especially if you're working in that type of job. I mean, you can beat it. It's awesome. Yeah. Well, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I know. I mean, it's, you know, it's as real as it gets without actually doing the real thing. You yeah. Know? And but. you learn a lot. I mean, a lot. We had a guy there. He was a, a Sri Lankan. And we were given a class about for the chest tube, right? And we're like, simulating we have a you know a guy pretend he was shot and he lays on the ground and he's going oh and the, the guy next to him was sitting next to me he goes that ain't what happens that ain't, <laughs> you don't do that and i go yeah and he goes yeah and he pulled up his shirt he had been stitched up the side with an ak-47 and they had three holes in him and he goes i didn't do that <laughs> It's like, all right, dude. I guess you're the authority on that one because I've never been shot. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it was it was awesome. I mean, I learned so much hanging out with different folks. I really enjoyed being with these indigs throughout the world. Malaysia, I went down to Malaysia. We actually did a joint operation that consisted of Malaysia, uh, Australia, and Guam, Saipan. <coughs> And what it was is a culmination of different organizations, both American and foreign, and we were looking for a dirty bomb. They actually brought in DITRA. Have you ever heard of DITRA? No, I haven't. They're a, a U.S. organization that has uh, nuclear sniffers. They can they got things set up. You know, ever you go down the highway and you see them things where the trucks pass under and this. Some of those are actually, I believe, looking for nuclear weapons, nuclear material, possibly, coming through. They got them in airports. They got them everywhere. They fly around in a helicopter in New York City with them. 
hmm. especially after 9-11. Yeah. But these folks, they actually had sniffers and they allowed us to use them. <clears throat> and they uh, had a small piece of nuclear material that an individual was carrying around. And I think we actually got them in uh, uh, Saipan is where we actually, but we went through Malaysia, you know, all around Australia. It was a good time. Damn. Long. That was like an eight month deployment. Eight months. Philippines, all over. Oh, so you just bounced around from Yeah, we bounced all around looking for this dirty bomb. It was a whole scenario. Damn. Awesome. And you guys Multiple. got them. Yeah, we got them in uh, Saipan. I think it was Saipan or Guam. But we had both the ASAT team, which was the Advanced Special Operation Techniques, the secret dudes. Mm -hmm. and I, that's the team I was on. It was all plain clothes. I'm telling you, the equipment we had back there was junk. I mean, you had a radio. You, you know what a Prick 68 was? Yeah. Big freaking thing like this, split up, and it had a connector, and we had that on us. We were down there walking through the Australian Zoo with all this junk. <laughs> earpieces in you know it's just it's what we had yeah you know and uh walking all around looking for this dirty bomb and doing little meets with people individuals of course it was scenario driven you know it was like but it was good training good time i didn't realize that uh asap program was that was developed that i know early. the navy seals try to get into it they did did they get into it? Oh, yeah. I heard they were trying to get into it. Yeah. But, yeah, it's a pretty good program. I went through the broken axle part of it, which was uh, preliminary to see if you were, you know, had what it took to go. Yeah. And I was like, I went through it. I passed everything. And they said, we're going to recommend you to go to the level three, which is three months long, dude. Yeah. And I just got the group. And I was like, well, I don't want to go. And they said, they were ticked up. They were just like, all right. Two months later, I was on a Halo team. <laughs> so I spent my time on a Halo team, my remaining 10 years on a, on a Halo team. Oh, right on. Yeah, no, I was, they started that, man, when, I don't know what year they started it, but I heard about it maybe in 04 time frame. Yeah, that's about right. Is when uh, we yep. started when I started hearing about it in the teams and then, and then I was going to go, we did, uh, we did a course with the British MI, with some former MI6 guys, yep. which was actually a really, it was one of my favorite courses, mm -hmm. uh, that I've ever done. Never fired a shot, never blew anything up, but it was all about, you know, blending in yep. and, and, uh, and it, it was some of the coolest shit I've ever done winding yep. up on the, I don't know, 18th, 20th story Bank of America building. Nobody knows who the hell you yep. are. It's just what can you infiltrate yourself into and without, you know, being detected, what happens when you get right. questioned? How do you handle all that? And I really fucking liked that course. And then, um, and uh, whatever, I'm getting long-winded. But then I was supposed to go to the... I was supposed to go, they had picked me to go to some course at uh, MI6. Oh, uh, yeah? Yeah, and then, and then I got yanked and uh, went, to, went to war, went to Afghanistan. Yeah, so, that's too bad. 
Yeah. I, now that I think about it, I, we actually had seals in my, my broken axle class. Oh, really? Yep, we did. Yeah. Good guys. <clears throat> I don't know, looking back, you know, if I would have, uh, I mean, because I would have given up a lot of combat experience had I wound up going to that course and then eventually getting into the ASOT thing. Uh, so I don't necessarily uh, regret it or anything like that. Yeah, I mean. But it was really, it was just so different than blowing shit up and shooting and shoot, move, communicate, right. going in the kill house, doing close quarters combat battle, you know what I mean? Yep. Taking houses down and and then you're doing something that's really permissive and blending in and it was yep. like, that was the James Bond shit of the, you know what I mean? It was pretty fucking cool. Guys use that a lot. In the, there was a, a guy I went through the Q course with that actually went Delta Force and they use that a lot over there. And he actually dressed up like Hodge, yeah. got on a bike and drove through Fallujah on a bike. And he's dark complexion with a beard and everything and mapped out all the positions they had already set up in Fallujah and went back and reported and then went in there and attacked them all. I mean, that stuff is viable. Even when we work with the agency, you still got the SDR portion and stuff like that. And, you know, you're always watching your back and you learn how to do that, all that kind of work. Oh, yeah. It all came uh it all came like when we started, when I started working there, you know, before I met you at all. I like that stuff, man. Yeah, I really like that under the radar. You're out there on your own. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and, uh, it's, it's just, it's another, it's just a whole nother, whatever you want to call it, trade yeah. craft. That, I loved it. I love trade craft. I love figuring it out things. I even probably, I still do it today when I want to drive around. Yeah. You know, it's just, it's something with me. And uh, I just do it just to do it. You know, I'm always watching, always looking, always trying to, what's he going to do? Always trying to keep a step. You know, it's funny because it's just, it's ingrained in you, I guess, after you do it for so long, you know. Yeah. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed working for the agency. It was a good time. Yeah. Working for them, with them, something like that. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> uh, yeah. But uh, let's take a quick break and and then uh, we'll come back and and uh, wrap this up. Thank you for listening to the Sean Ryan Show. If you haven't already, please take a minute, head over to iTunes and leave the Sean Ryan Show a review. We read every review that comes through and we really appreciate the support. Thank you. Let's get back to the show. All right, man, we're back from the break. Kind of covered everything. We're going to talk about transition. I think I'm going to spare you the pain of talking about transition. So let's just talk a little bit about what you're doing now. Now, I know you just launched a new business, but uh, when you left the agency, you started Phalanx Concealment. And uh, we've been using your products here at Vigilance Elite for, what, Five years. Five years now. Called him out on, I don't know, a couple different videos. And, uh, and uh, but now you're kind of venturing off into, into something new. Yeah. So what are you doing now? So I decided to go ahead and try my hand at woodworking. I enjoy doing woodworking. I have for a while. 
Um, the new company is called True Grit Wood Designs. Um, I've got an Etsy account, and uh, I believe it'll probably be up and running within the next week. <clears throat> um, we're focusing right now on cutting cutting boards, butcher block board type. I have a thing for the women called a spa board. Um, I even dabbling in epoxy type uh, art. So wood epoxy type art, charcuterie boards, serving trays. Um, it's, it's sky's the limit with this. I Your mean, stuff's amazing, man. I mean, I mean, you made that raw edge live edge bar over there. Bar, Is that what they call yeah, it? Live yeah, edge live bar. Live edge bar. You made that. I made that. The it's actually a river table and it's made out of the actual stones out of your river, <laughs> out of your stream, and it's got a trident in it. Um, <clears throat> yeah, tabletops, stuff like that. The hardest part right now for me is trying to decide what type of legs to put on a table. So that's the big challenge. So other than that, uh, I got all everything set up. It's uh operational i'm actually building inventory right now for when i go live in about a week on etsy well we'll make sure you're live before we release this episode so uh the link to both phalanx concealment if you want to buy a holster uh they're all handmade custom that's below uh what you're really focusing on nowadays and what you're transitioning into is the woodworking and your work is absolutely fucking incredible. Well, I appreciate it. Yeah, so that's linked it. below. And um, yeah, man, I just, I want to thank you for coming out. I know, like I said, I know it's it's nerve-wracking sitting in that damn chair. Well, I loosened up a little bit. I feel a little, a lot better now. You know, initially you don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. But uh, I thoroughly enjoyed it. And for your viewers, I appreciate you supporting Phalanx Concealment. We had our five-year anniversary last month and uh not we me <laughs> <laughs> a lot of people out there and i appreciate your your viewers for supporting me throughout the years excellent um i mean tremendous tremendous support and i really do appreciate you uh pitching it for me uh for those of the those of you out there he really didn't know me that well and pitched it for me out of the kindness of his heart. Just vets, supporting vets, and I think that's extremely important. I buy all most of my material from to make the holsters from vets. So you're supporting vets, and it keep, keeps giving, you know, it keeps giving, and I think that's an important thing. Yeah. I just saw you, man. You know, I mean, we did one deployment at the agency together. And I left a couple of years before you did, and and uh, I can't even remember how we got in touch. But uh, to be honest, do you? Yeah, my sales were like going bonkers, man. I was like, what in the world's going on? I don't remember how I found and out you were making holsters. Somebody told me, somebody told me that you were promoting my stuff. Yeah. So I called you up, and that's how that it started. It. <laughs> yeah, I found out, and. Uh, or you called me. I just know how fucking hard it is to uh, transition out of. Oh yeah. 
a life of special operations and agency work and go into uh, the business world, yep. having to deal with real life. What I got to say about life. that is endeavor to persevere. Just yep. keep going. But before we do wrap this up, I do have one phone call I need to make. And uh, when I was talking to your dad, he said he had something he wanted to tell you. Is that why he's been waiting for me? He was call, he's calling me up today. Hello? Alan. Well, hello, Sean. How are you? I got, I had a great talk with you yesterday, talking about your son and uh, he's sitting right in front of me and uh we kind of talked about you had something that you wanted to say to him so he's sitting right here can Let's you hear, hear it I'd like, to, I'd like to thank you first for having me on your uh podcast and uh, you have my son sitting there yeah he's there John. You too, Dad. Celebrate the Black Friday sales event at Woodhouse Chrysler Dodge Jeep Ram in Blair. Step into a new Jeep that you can count on. From the awarded new Grand Cherokee to the capable 2022 Jeep Compass, the Jeep lineup won't compromise on power, technology, or comfort. Delivering confidence and convenience for 29 years. Woodhouse Chrysler Dodge Jeep Ram in Blair is your trusted auto partner. Visit us off Highway 30 in Blair or online at WoodhouseChryslerJeepDodge.com. Today's show is sponsored by HelixSleep.com. Sleep, especially as you get older, is so critical, especially that deep, comforting sleep. Go to HelixSleep.com and take the sleep quiz. I took it and was matched with the Midnight Lux. Helix knows that everyone's unique, so they have several different mattress models to match based on your body type and sleep preferences. Once you match, your mattress comes right to your front door, shipped for free. When you receive your Helix mattress, You'll be hooked. It's so easy to unbox and you won't believe how well you sleep. You'll wake up feeling rested and refreshed. Helix mattresses are fiberglass free and cradle your body for essential support in every sleeping position. They have a 10-year warranty and Helix even has financing options and flexible payment plans. So a great night's sleep is never far away. Helix is offering up to 30% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com slash SRS. That's helixsleep.com slash SRS. 
This is their best offer yet, and it's not going to last long with Helix. Better sleep starts now.